Thank you for what you have just been doing in our gathering, Lord. This is your meeting, not ours. And the people that we've had the privilege of pray for, praying for, you made, we didn't. And we believe that you are able. So by your power and through your spirit, touch everyone. And for those online that desperately wanted to receive prayer, touch them now by the power of the Holy Spirit. Restore physically, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. Do your work. You are not confined by geography. So move in sovereign power, I pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much, Johnny, for leading us through that unexpected time. Could you show our worship team your appreciation, please? God, I believe, was powerfully at work in those last 20 or minutes or so. Thank you, not only to those of you that asked for prayer, but thank you to all of you for praying. Thank you for not being spectators as we minister to one another as a community. If you're here as a guest or a visitor and you think, what on earth was that? Let me just explain that here in this church family, we believe that God is still alive. That he still speaks. And that he still has the power to heal and restore people. We believe that he's the one that made you. And therefore, he's the one that knows every sinew and cell and fiber and nerve ending in your body. And although you may not be used to church, and you may have looked and thought, that was a little unusual. Let me explain that when God, the creator, the sustainer, and the life giver is present, it is entirely natural to ask him to touch people's bodies and minds and souls. It's entirely in keeping with the New Testament. and It's entirely in keeping with the tradition of the Christian community. And if you'd like to know more about that, then just ask one of us at the end, and we'd love to explain it and help you understand why we believe that prayer and praying for the sick is an important part of the ministry of the local church. And thank you for witnessing it. Would you please turn in your Bible, if you have one with you, and if you haven't got one, um, borrow or steal one from somebody near you. Don't steal it, just borrow it. To Matthew chapter 5. We started a series a few weeks ago on the Sermon on the Mount, which is contained in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. And this morning, I'd like to read to you one of the most famous portions of the whole Bible, being used in idioms and in phrases around the world. And it's contained in Matthew chapter 5, from verse 13 down to verse 16. My mum and dad would talk about people that were were good people. And they'd say, they're the salt of the earth. Those people are the salt of the earth. That phrase comes from what we're about to read. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but it is thrown out 
and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. On June the 18th this year, the Reverend Dr. Timothy Keller, founder of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, and now the leader of a, a global movement called City, the City Movement, City Church Movement, was invited to address the National Prayer Breakfast of the United Kingdom in the Great Hall in Westminster Palace. He talked about the passage that I'm going to talk to you about for a few moments this morning. He reminded the parliamentarians and the policymakers and the people that were present that the Christian church had had a powerful, profound, and positive impact on society since its formation just after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that Western Europe and the United Kingdom had been fundamentally changed for the better because of Jewish or Judeo-Christian values. And he urged them to remember that the church needs to be the church in order to see society healthy and strong. I'll return to that idea in a few moments. But in the Sermon on the Mount, after the Beatitudes that we explored last week, and if you'd like to understand my take on those, please just go onto our Facebook page or onto our website or onto our podcast and you can listen to that message. But after reminding his followers that they lived in an upside-down kingdom, Jesus encourages them in Matthew chapter 5, verses 7, 13 to 16, to be salt and to be light. Remember, this is addressed not to the global society, not to the wider Jewish community. This is, this is addressed to his followers to his disciples, to those who knew him and loved him and are following him. It is to them that he speaks, Matthew chapter 5. And he tells them that they are to be salt and light. In 1959, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was the pastor of a church called Westminster Chapel, tried to explain his reasons for beginning to preach through the Sermon on the Mount at that stage in the church in London. It was 14 years after the Second World War, Britain was just entering a period of liberalization where everything was going to be set free and go topsy-turvy. He sensed it coming in his heart and in his soul. And remember in the 1956, the, the late 50s, there was the Suez crisis and Harold Macmillan gave the pound in your pocket speech for those of you that are old enough to remember. Anybody old enough to remember that? About six people. Britain was still in the grips of a kind of austerity trying to work out how to pay for the Second World War, which we didn't stop paying for until about four or five years ago. Everything was tight. Everything was difficult. Everything was uncertain. The Bay of Pigs had yet to happen, for those of you that are historians or interested in it. JFK had yet to be elected. He was elected in 1960, murdered in 1963. Martin Luther King had yet to emerge onto the stage as a civil rights activist. All of that was still to happen. 
And Lloyd-Jones felt it was right to preach a, a series on the Sermon on the Mount because he wanted to help Christians to live well. Here's what he said. I do not think it is a harsh judgment to say that the most obvious feature of the life of the Christian church today is, alas, its superficiality. The judgment is based not only on contemporary observation, but still more on contemporary observation in the light of previous epochs and eras in the life of the church. I am convinced beyond I can explain to you that that statement could be said about the church of Jesus Christ in the United Kingdom and in Northern Ireland and in the Republic of Ireland and in Europe today. I, am, I have never been more excited about the church and its future than I am on the 22nd of July, 2018. The church of Jesus Christ is alive. There are parts of it that are growing beyond our imagination across Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland and England and Scotland and Wales and the Channel Islands and the Isle of Man and France and Germany and the, west of, the rest of Western Europe. There are pockets of authentic disciples making a massive difference for Jesus Christ. They're engaging with the poor. They're serving the broken. They're proclaiming the gospel. They're standing up for those that are marginalized. They're remembering those that are forgotten. It is an exciting time in the lives of so many local churches. I think it's an exciting time in the life of our local church, don't you? And yet, at the same time, churches are dying across those areas too. Sometimes you can feel as if you walk into a church and you think, what happened here? Life is gone. Passion is gone. Energy is gone. Purpose is gone. Centrality is gone. Meaning is gone. Uh, the sense of the Spirit has gone. It's as if they're trying to conjure something up from 50 or 60 or 70 years ago. They've lost connection with the wider world. They've lost connection with their source. They've lost connection with the reality of who Jesus is. And when those things happen, one of two things happen. A German theologian at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century said this, if the Holy Spirit was to leave the church, 90% of our program would go on as if nothing had happened. When you sense that there's something lacking in a church community or in the church across the nation, one of two things happen. You either go to something that makes people feel better, light and fluffy, or you become so not like the church that you forget who you are. The Sermon on the Mount reminds us that we have a distinctive, clear purpose in the world and that we are to see the challenges of the world and remember the power and the presence of God in our lives and let him rise in us to meet that challenge. Jeremiah, in his book, chapter 2, verse 13, a record of what he said to Israel as they were being taken into slavery, pulled back into exile, around 606 BC, as the um, Babylonians took a hold of them and destroyed them. Jeremiah warned the people of God, and he said this in verse 13 of chapter 2, My people have committed two sins. They have forgotten me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns. Broken cisterns that cannot hold water. The challenge to the people of Israel was clear, the words were recorded just a few years before they were taken into exile by the Babylonians. 
And it was a challenge to them that said, you have forgotten who you are. You have been disconnected from your source. Like Aaron, hundreds of years before, had created a golden calf, the people of Israel had settled for easy worship, easy living, and they'd lost their identity. Worse than that, they had placed their identity in false gods, idols, their security, their sense of hope came from the wrong thing. They traded real spirituality for cheap spirituality, real witness for cheap witness. 700 years later, Jesus wanted his disciples to know that he was the vine and that his father was the gardener. He told them that they were to abide in him. And as they abided in him, he added these challenging words. You are my disciples if you do what I have commanded you. The Sermon on the Mount tells us of some of the central things that Jesus has commanded and that Jesus has enabled us to live. It was relevant in the 50s, it was relevant in the 60s, and it is as relevant today as it has ever been. The Elam Pentecostal Church, the Pentecostal Church, the Evangelical Church, the Charismatic Church, the Church of Jesus Christ, whatever its color or its hue or its tribe or its um, flavor, must not drink it broken cisterns. We mustn't trade who we are for cheap spirituality. We must allow God in his grace and in his mercy to speak into our lives. I want to explore for a few minutes what that might mean in terms of being salt and light. All of what I have said sets the scene for us understanding ourselves and our place in God's world. Jesus challenges the notion that we are to live detached or away from the world. From verses 17 of Matthew chapter 5 through to verse 48, he grounds spirituality in very real situations, relationships, um, our sexuality, our words, the way we think, the way we treat other people, how we handle criticism. I'm going to look at all of that next week. But he says in verses 13 to 16, you are the salt of the earth. And if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. People don't put a light in a bowl. They put it on a stand. What a remarkable thing to say to a group of rejects and poor men and women. Jesus wasn't speaking to the upper echelons of society. He wasn't speaking to politicians. He wasn't speaking to those that were going to be at the top of the tree in Israel. He was talking to those at the bottom of the tree. He was talking to those that the religious authorities rejected. He was talking to ordinary men and women. Men and women like you and me. Who have to bring up families and work out finances. And put food on the table. And care for sick children. And go to work and come home. And make things work in a community. He wasn't talking to people that could lounge around all day. And think about things. He was talking to people like you and me. Who had decided to follow him. You are the salt of the world. You are the light of the world. It's a a statement of position. And of purpose. And of experience. Of course, it was addressed to the Jewish people, to Israel, to those who were following Jesus Christ. 
But they came from a tradition where they understood salt and light. They knew that to be salt and light was to be a preservative and a flavor into society. It was to shine a light so people would know where to go in a needy world. But here in this passage, Jesus is addressing his followers. And if you read it carefully in the, in, in the, in the text, no English version will give you this. But it's written in what's called an emphatic style. So in essence, here is what Jesus Christ says. Allow this to sink in for a minute. You and you only are the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the light of the world. That's the sense of the Greek text. If you think that's offensive now, it was offensive then too. My followers are the real salt of the earth, he says. My people are the real light of the world. Jewish leaders listening. High priests perhaps listening. Scribes and Pharisees listening. Was he saying in that moment, there's no good anywhere else? Not at all. The Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus' half-brother James later would teach this. In his letter, he said this, God is the father of all good things. And he is the father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning. Let me tell you something that I don't mean to offend you with, but it's important. Not only does uh, Donald Elam not have a monopoly on kindness and goodness and mercy, the Christian church doesn't have a monopoly on it. There are men and women in Northern Ireland and in the Republic of Ireland today who are kind, loving, demonstrating something which is beautiful. You live next door to some of them. Sometimes we fall into the mistake, I wonder if you've ever said this, of saying something like this about them. You know, they're so good that make a lovely Christian. That person's just a Christian waiting to be converted. You're misunderstanding what goodness is. I'm not talking about ontological goodness. I've got bad news for you and good news for you when it comes to ontological goodness. Do you know what I mean by ontological goodness? Are you all saying, what, I thought ontology, ontology was watching birds. Ontological goodness is inherent goodness. Goodness at the very center of your being. The bad news about that is that the Bible teaches that nobody is ontologically good. None of us. I'm not. You're not. Left to our own devices, we go off and do our own thing. We put ourselves first. We hurt other people. But at no point does the Bible say that people are not capable of goodness. Men and women are capable of goodness all the time. You see it when millions of pounds is given in a charity concert. You see it when a neighbor cuts a hedge. You see it when we look after people that are vulnerable. You see it when we're kind and compassionate. And I see it a lot. In ordinary men and women, I've seen it in some of you, a member of the congregation here about 10 days ago, not worrying about my waistline, of course, made me and my family a coffee cake. That was a good thing to do. Somebody last week handed me a little bag and inside it was a, a, a mahogany or a teal um, inscription of the Lord is my shepherd. We're all capable of acts of kindness. Being kind, being good. Jesus is going further than that. 
He's saying to them that the way they live, the way they behave, has a dramatic impact on the world. And he says it to us today. You are the light of the world and you alone. What does that mean? Does it mean only you are capable of good? No. It means that only the Christian community can shine something into the world that can bring lasting, eternal hope to the world. Only the Christian community has something in its DNA that can change the direction of society for the good, for a lasting, long-term impact. It's not about being a do-gooder. It's not about just stuff that we do. It's about something that we carry deep inside of us. And it works its way out if we're teachers or lawyers or doctors or butchers or bakers or candlestick makers. It works its way out in every word that we speak, every penny that we spend, every moment that we invest. It works its way out in what we do with our families and our time and our priorities. And we are to be salt and light. What is that thing that sits at the center of my existence out of which can flow life? I don't know if you're a parent or you've ever been a parent or you know somebody who's a parent I remember when our kids were tiny. They're not tiny anymore. Looking at them and having this real metaphysical existential thing going on. What world are they going to live in? What's school going to be like for them? What's freedom going to look like for them? Are they going to be able to survive in this hectic world? As a Christian I realized that God was saying something to me about what it means to help people live well. You see, the Bible teaches that the world is in darkness. Otherwise, why would it need a light? But it tells us that the light of the world has come in Jesus Christ. Now, in 1637, you didn't think I was going to end up there, did you? In a Parisian cellar, a Frenchman called Descartes was hungry and cold and broke. And he was trying to work out what the, life, what, what the world was all about, what life was for. Up until that point, the predominant way that the, the Western society that he lived in looked at the world was to say this. God is the source of truth. God is the source of life. God is the source of light and of revelation and of hope. Descartes found it incredibly difficult to work out who he was and why he was here. And he, his thought processes went on for days and days and days, but he had a moment of revelation and epiphany and experience beside a, 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 a stove in a cellar in Paris in 1637 where he said this, how do I even know that I'm alive? How do I even know that I'm here? And he said, I know that I'm here because I'm thinking. But how do I know that I'm thinking? Well, I know that I'm thinking because I'm asking the question, follow me, I know it's complicated. Am I thinking? And therefore, if I'm asking the question that I'm thinking, I know that I'm thinking. And if I'm asking the question, I know that I'm asking the question, and the question is, how do I know I'm asking the question? Then that's proving that the question that I'm asking is proving that I'm thinking. Therefore, I exist. I think. Therefore, I am. Actually, a more accurate description of that revelation is I doubt. 
therefore I am. And that became the basis of what we call the enlightenment. So much good has flowed out of that. Medicine improved, education improved, healthcare improved, society improved, learning improved, universities improved, uh, people's rights and privileges improved. So much has flown out of it that is good, but so has so much that is bad. I'm not sure it was an enlightenment. Why use the phrase enlightenment? There's much that has become bad as a result of the way we think. I'm the center of the universe. What I want is more important than anybody else. Therefore, I am more important than anyone else. I doubt, therefore I am. I think, therefore I am. Give way in the 18th and 19th centuries to, um, I experience, therefore I am. And that gave way in the early 20th century to, I am in relationship, therefore I am. And that gave way in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s to, I shop, therefore I am. And now, what would be the description of our society? I have, therefore I am. Or I'm popular, therefore I am. Or I have friends on Facebook, therefore I am. I'm connected, therefore I am. There's an African phrase from a village, and it says this, I am because we are. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, points back to what real light and real life and real hope comes from. The world is in darkness and somehow we are called to be a light to it. Not the superstar, not the televangelist, not just the people that stand on stages like me. But you, in college tomorrow, at university, bringing up your grandchildren, working out how to treat a neighbor, trying to live well, influencing people. And at the center of who we are is the cross. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our purpose in the world is that men and women might see him, encounter his beauty, see his goodness, know his mercy. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent. He goes on to say, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. To live as salt and light in the world is to live out of the center of what Jesus has done in you and what he is doing through you. We'll come to it in a second. Let me read to you the message version of Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Let me tell you why you are here. You are here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of the world. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You are here to bring out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. 
We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to put you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you here on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to see and open up to God, their generous Father in heaven. The world is turned upside down with these words. Jesus says to his disciples, the way you live shows people whether you believe in me or not. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. In the Old Testament, and I don't have time to go into it this morning, God says again and again to his people that salt matters, that they are salt. Let me just highlight a couple of examples of that because it's important for you to understand what I'm about to say. Listen to the words of Isaiah 42, verse 6. You don't need to look them up. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. In Isaiah 49, verse 6, God says, Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. God said to his people Israel again and again, you are light and you are salt. Light for the world, not just for each other. Light for society. Light to show those who don't know what God is like, what God is like. He also told them again and again that they were salt. In Exodus chapter 30, verse 35, he reminds them of a salt covenant. In Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, he talks about seasoning them with salt. In 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 19 to 21, dirty water is made clean by salt. In 2 Chronicles chapter 13, verse 5, David's line is described as having been sealed by a covenant of salt. Jesus repeats in Mark chapter 9 verse 50 and Luke chapter 14 verse 34 that we are the salt of the earth. But if if we've lost our saltiness, what good are we for? What does it mean to be salty? What does it mean to be light? Well, there are three basic metaphors that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount and in Matthew chapter 13 that are to do with small things with big influence. Salt, light, and yeast. All small, yet having a massive impact. Too much light blinds you. Too much salt puts you off. Too much yeast does nothing but give you wind. Salt, light, and yeast. Three metaphors of smallness. Where does it apply? How does it work itself out? Let me focus on salt. Light, I think, is more obvious. It lights a path. It illuminates a room. It helps you understand. Jesus says in John chapter 7 and John chapter 9 that he is the light of the world. But here he says, you are the light of the world. Well, the light that we carry is his light in us. As he shines through us, other people see him. How do they see him? We'll see that in a minute. What about this salt analogy? Well, you will all know that salt has many distinctive contributions to make. People often overlook the Old Testament story of salt covenants and salt healing. They're important. 
But salt also preserves and tastes. Back to, for a moment, Timothy Keller. What did he say at the National Prayer Breakfast on the 18th of June? Well, he reminded the parliamentarians and the leaders there with Theresa May sitting beside him and um, Jeremy Corbyn and um, uh, uh, lots of others that the Christian church in the United Kingdom has been a preservative and a flavorer since its inception. He reminded them that the rights of women were defended first by Christians. He reminded them that slavery was objected to first by Christians in the fourth century. He reminded them of human rights. The Declaration of Human Rights from the 1951 Geneva Convention springs out of, human, um, of Christian values and commitments. I could go on. I could suggest to you that before there was a national health service, it was the church that was salt caring for the sick and serving the poor. Where did universal education come from? The church. Where did youth work and engagement in the marginalized come from? The church. Where does the welfare system come from? The church. Where do the laws of the United Kingdom come from? Judeo-Christian values and the church. Where does the respect of men and women to have a vote come from? The church. Where does the idea of marriage being a safe place for the nurturing of men and women, boys and girls and children come from? The church. Where does the idea that we should protect the vulnerable, defend the weak, have a police force, care for prison reform, where does it come from? It comes from the church. So we live in a society that is now telling us that the church is bad for Britain. That here in Northern Ireland, Christianity is bad for this country. That it's bad for the Republic of Ireland. And we've taken the examples of a church that has got it wrong in child abuse and has got it wrong in bigotry and got it wrong in hatred and got it wrong in racism and rightly pointed it out and said, wait, that's wrong. But don't for a minute think that because some of those things have happened, everything the church has done has been wrong. The church of Jesus Christ has been the single most powerful weapon and tool and body in the world to bring about equality and fairness and change and rightness and justice and inclusion and freedom and liberty and hope for men and women. So when Jesus is talking about being salt and light, he is reminding his people that they are to live in society in such a way that they make a difference. Keller didn't say all of that. <laughs> Let me read you something that he did say. A Canadian the uh, philosopher called Charles Taylor wrote a book called Source of the Self in which he said, where does your desire to do right come from? It doesn't just come from human nature. Because if you can determine what's right or wrong, then what's wrong with having a Nazi government? What's the framework that makes the decision that it's wrong? An old lady is walking across the road. It's late at night and nobody else can see. She's carrying 200 pounds in her hands that she's taken from a cash machine. Why wouldn't you rob her? 
Think about it. Why wouldn't you take the money off her? How many of you would take the money off her? Okay. So why wouldn't you take the money off her? Why is it wrong? Who decides it's wrong? Let me give you three options. Option number one. Um, you don't want it. Option number two. You feel what it would be like to be her and therefore you won't take it. Or option number three, you just know it's wrong. Why do you know it's wrong? Here's why. And it's not my work. This is the work of anthropologists and sociologists for the last 50 years. If you're part of a Western culture, here's why you wouldn't do that. Because Jewish Christian values are so embedded in our culture got nothing to do with biology. It's got nothing to do with evolution because you would take it if those things were the things that were determining you. Instead, there's a set of values that shape us so deeply and profoundly that we don't even know why they shape us, but they shape us. And it's wrong to take advantage of the vulnerable. It comes from Christianity. Now, here's what Charles Taylor's book, The Source of the Self, argues, that exact thing. Here's what an atheist wrote about it. An atheist review of the book. Perseverance and virtue will require self-sacrifice. And self-sacrifice seems to require some kind of great justification or motivation, of which the most common and perhaps the most logical is belief in God. Or so Taylor circumspectly claims. This is the review author. Listen to this. Since modern freedom entails the rejection of all such notions as God, upon which modern virtue is wholly contingent, my question is this. Can we be good for very long without God? And the answer is, I don't think so. Here's how the atheist finishes his review. Are you listening? He's asked the question, can we be good for very long without God? This is a man who doesn't believe in God. Here's his last line of his review. Taylor's doubts, he writes, are daunting to me, and they haunt me at night. We need a source of goodness. We need a source of light and life and hope and something to live for. And the Christian worldview tells us that that source comes in God Almighty. In his power and his presence and his virtue in our lives. Now here's the thing. We look back over the last four or five hundred years. Maybe the church has been salty by bringing out the God flavors of society, helping people to be the best communities, the kindest, the most loving. Maybe that's why your school um, was the school you were in. I'm not saying we're perfect, but maybe there are examples you can think of in your family, in your community, that you look back and you say, do you know there was something to do with goodness in there somewhere? And we pulled it out. Hear me. I'm going to live, I'm hoping, I've asked God, can I preach a sermon when I'm 100? Not one sermon that launches from today and finishes there. That would mean another 52 years. Then I'll retire. What if 
the next 50 years of the church in the United Kingdom and the church in Northern Ireland and the church in the Republic of Ireland is not about us simply pulling the best out of people, but about stopping the rot. What if prophetically the next 50 years of our lives together are about saying enough is enough. We will defend the vulnerable. We will protect the poor. We will go out of our way to love the broken and create communities where lost and broken people are welcome. We will make a difference in education and a difference in healthcare and we will keep standing up. Let your good deeds shine that they may see them and glorify their Father in heaven. Every one of you can be salty. I know this meeting is taking longer. Thank you for your patience. It will only be two hours. <laughs> Here's the thing. We're not going to really be two hours. Do not panic. Here's the thing. The church for 2,000 years has focused so much on being gathered that we've forgotten what it means to be dispersed. The whole metaphor of salt and light is about being dispersed. Spread across society. Spread into every aspect and every avenue of society. Imagine what Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland could look like. Not if Christians in journalism and hospital care and health care and, and mental health and school and education and, and, and the army and the, the police force and uh, taxation and business and commerce. and Not if they all just take that as an opportunity to yell at people that they have to be born again. As important as that might be. Imagine what might happen if you determined today on the 22nd of July that you were going to be the best um, chippy that you could ever be. The best carpenter that you could be. If you were going to be the best musician that you could be. The best academic that you could be. The best doctor that you could be. The best midwife that you could be. Imagine if God had actually elevated all of our callings so that they're all holy. That everything we do matters. Everything we do. The way we bring up our children. The way we parent. The way we look after grandchildren. The way we care for our neighbors. The way we use our money. The way we shop. Where we live. How we live. What we say. What we do. Imagine if God is as interested in us being dispersed and effective as he is us being gathered and effective. Imagine if every girl in the GB is a possibility of a life transforming force. Imagine if every boy in our GB is someone who could change the world, maybe not stand on a stage, but do things in Dundonald and Greater Belfast that could transform Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. I think what Jesus is talking about here is live your life in such a way, in ordinary everyday acts, that the love and the grace and the hope and the mercy and the power of God blazes out of you and see what happens. And we condense that down to a sermon on an hour, for an hour on a Sunday morning. God help us. <sighs> I'm enjoying this. <laughs> I'm going to give you a really silly example of salt and light. It's about me. Normally my examples of me are examples of my feeling. Because there are so many to choose from. This isn't. Those of you that have seen me in hospital visiting somebody or have received a pastoral visit from me after you've lost someone or if you're going through a crisis or have seen me in the high street will have noticed that I wear a clerical collar. 
You might call it a dog collar. I hate that phrase, but I'll forgive you. Some people hate it. You're getting all religious. Come on here with your dog collar telling me what to do. That's normally the Christians. There are a number of reasons why I wear a clerical collar. One of them is the utter conviction that when I walk onto a street, because what I've committed my life to, in public, I want people to know that I'm not ashamed of Jesus Christ. And I want to invite a conversation. I want to create a dialogue. I want to give people a chance to say something to me. There's a second pragmatic reason. It gets me in places. (laughs) When nurses or doctors say, you can't come in, I say, oh, yes, I can. And they say, no, you can't. They'll say, well, actually, I can. (laughs) And occasionally they say, no, you definitely can't. And if there's a good reason, I'll not wait to go in. But if there isn't a good reason, I will stand my ground. And I will say, I think you will discover that the NHS Charter makes commitment for patients to be cared for physically and spiritually. If you'd like to check with the Director of Nursing or Medical Care, I'll wait. (laughs) And every time they do it, they come back and say, oh, we're so sorry, you are allowed in. Pragmatically, when you have to do a lot of visiting, when you're doing a lot of running around and you're trying to get from one place to another, you can't constrict or restrict your visitation between two and three. So I wear a clerical collar because it helps me. But here's the real reason. It invites dialogue. Um, so when I, when I walk onto a ward, I don't only really pray for the person in the ward that I've gone to see. I pray for the people on either side. I pray for the staff and I walk out of the ward slowly, and I stop, and I look at people, and I say, thank you so much for being such a fantastic part of the NHS. I have never, now you will not believe this, but this is true. In 30 years of wearing a clerical collar, I have never, ever, ever put it on in a day when I've not had at least one unexpected conversation. Let me give you two examples from the last month. I don't care if you believe me or not, they're true. There was a funeral here in this church not so long ago. And on the way back to the house, I was rather hungry. So I decided to go to John Dory's because I heard it was good fish and chips. I went in to get my fish and chips, and the, the woman behind the counter said, are you a priest? I had my clerical collar on. I said, yes, not a priest really, I'm a minister. She said, I, I didn't know you ate. <laughs> I said, honestly, we do. (laughs) Then I realized I had no money. That's not a bad story, don't worry. I said, I'm going to go to the cash machine and I'm going to get some money. It was that Eurospar thing up there. So I went to get money. I put my card in the card machine, took the money out. As I turned, this woman walked up to me and she said, are you a minister? I said, yes, I am. She said, could you tell me about Jesus, please? And standing beside the cash machine, I pointed her to Christ. Now yesterday, Isabel Hawthorne's in hospital. Honest to goodness. I was on cloud nine last night. Uh, did me far more good than anything has done all week. Yesterday I went to see Isabel Hawthorne in hospital. Came away, had a lovely time with her. She and I had a good laugh. I came away and I was actually going to see uh, Tracy, and, and, um, Tracy and Roy Halliday afterwards. And as I came down into the car park in the Ulster Hospital, this little old woman came up to me. And she said, excuse me, she must have been about 87 or 88. She said, excuse me, where's the main road? And I said, well, it's down there. I said, why do you need the main road? 
I had my clerical collar on. She said, because I'm going to get a bus into Belfast. I said, oh, would you like me to give you a lift into Belfast? She said, oh, would you do that? I said, yes, of course I would. I've got the people that I'm going to see don't know I'm coming. They can wait. No offense. <laughs> and I said, I like talking. I'd love to talk to you. She said, okay, that would be lovely. And then I said, as we were walking to my car, her name is Miss Smith. Um, we were walking to the car, and I said, why are you going to Belfast anyway? And what are you doing here on a Saturday morning? She said, well, I'm here for an, an, an eye appointment, an ENT appointment. I said, I didn't know they did outpatients appointments on a Saturday morning. She said, no, neither did I. And I don't know why they sent me all the way over here, because I live in Lisburn. And I, why didn't they send me to the Lagan Valley Hospital? She said, I'm getting a bus into Belfast to get a bus to Lisburn. I said, sure, I'll just take you home. Why would you get a bus into Lisburn to get a bus into Belfast to get a bus to Lisburn when I could take you to Lisburn and be back? And it'll only take me 30 or 40 minutes. She said, would you do that? I said, yes, I would. Before she got out of the car in Lisburn, I'm not going to give you her address in case you all turn up. <laughs> this 87-year-old woman had pointed out where her brother lived and the fact that he was sick. She told me that her mother had died at 103 and she'd nursed her all the way through. And for that reason, she'd never married. She told me that she felt very alone. She told me that she felt very afraid. I shared the gospel with her. And the last thing I did with her before she got out of the car was lead her to Jesus Christ. Now you tell me that wearing a clerical collar doesn't have impact. It's salt and light. That's what it is. It's making a determined decision to say, I'm always on duty. Nobody's a distraction. I'm always on duty. It's a tiny example. If you're a teacher, you're always on duty. If you're a father, you're always on duty. Don't let that drag you toward fear and anxiety. Let it lift you towards hope and possibility. Let your life so shine that men and women will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Cut hair for the glory of Jesus. Have conversation for the glory of Jesus. Live for the glory of Jesus. Study for the glory of Jesus. And if you are here today and you don't have that light and life and hope and purpose at the center of your life, let me tell you that God in his mercy and in his grace is able to give you light. And maybe you're stuck in a dead-end job and you say, it doesn't matter and it's not making a difference. Your life can make a difference. You have dignity and value and worth wherever you are and whatever you do. So may God in his rich mercy pour out his life on you so that you can shine and you can impact society. Amen. Now, I don't want any of you to become religious and offended by what I am about to do. But we are not going to take bread and wine this morning. I am conscious that we have prayed for the sick and that our service already has gone on quite a long time. I'm not suggesting for one moment that we don't have time to do this. Here is what I'm going to suggest. For those of you that want to stay and break bread, we're going to sing a closing song now in which I invite you to commit your life to Christ. And I invite you to ask him to give you grace and mercy to live for him. And then, after I've pronounced the benediction, I'm going to stay here. And if you would like to receive communion, then I will stay and I will serve you. 
But if you need to get on to something else that you're doing, do not be anxious or embarrassed or nervous about that. I am aware that our meeting has been longer today. And I want to release you if you need to go, to go. And if you want to stay in an act of worship and share bread and wine, then I'm going to invite you to come forward and we'll sit here at the front of the church building so that those that need to go can go. The only impact of that will be after I finish this song, if you don't want to take communion, could you please perhaps just make your way out of this auditorium as quickly as you can so that those that are going to stay and take it can do so with some space to reflect and think. Please do not be offended by that. I believe that's the right thing to do. Let's pray. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your love in Jesus Christ. Help us to live as salt and light in your world where you have placed us for your glory. Amen. Let's stand together if you're willing and able and we're going to uh, sing a closing hymn. Crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon the throne. Rich wounds get visible above.
to love and to serve him as you take a stand for truth and justice whether that be operating a nursery to godly principles giving your staff a day off on a Sunday treating employees fairly working hard being committed to your family telling the truth standing for justice whatever it is you do may you know the grace of God in your service on your life and on your worship In the name of the Father, the Son.